Hey folks, just a heads up, uh, this episode contains references to suicide. Is depression funny? Depression is hilarious. When life is void of meaning and joy, everything is hilarious. You're like, can't believe that I uh, am getting dressed today. <laughs> like, why would I do that when my naked body will be soon returning to the soil anyway? <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> From Elliest Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. In many ways, my relationship with podcasts began as a mental health exercise. It was years ago. I was living by myself in Chicago. I was deeply unhappy, and I was deeply alone. To ward off loneliness, I would take long walks in the freezing Chicago air listening to podcasts. I listen to people talk and tell stories and interview each other and have a good time. That's how we started really getting into podcasts, as a way to manage my depression. So for this episode, my guest was John Moe, the creator of the hit podcast, The Hilarious World of Depression, and a new memoir of the same name. We spoke a few weeks back, and we had planned to release the interview as part of our launch. The conversation was light, thoughtful, fun. It was hopeful. We talked about the future and where John might want to take the show. But much has changed since we spoke. Earlier this week, we learned that the show was being cancelled and that Mo is being laid off by American public media. The official reason, as reported elsewhere, economic turmoil and budget shortfalls due to the pandemic. We briefly considered pulling this episode, but decided against it. We felt that what happened to the hilarious world of depression stands as a representation of how tenuous these times are, with the pandemic and its economic consequences. So we're rending this interview to help honor John's vision. Furthermore, I really believe in this show. Since its debut in 2016, John has served up interviews with interesting people about depression, mental health, and most difficult moments in their lives. He's spoken with reporters and drag queens, actors and comedians, athletes and musicians. Recently, he sat down with Daryl McDaniels, otherwise known as DMC of Ren DMC, who spoke about a failed attempt to take his own life. We was in Austria or Yugoslavia somewhere. I was going to go jump off the roof at the, the hotel roof. When we was in Japan one time, I went to the fucking um, hardware store by myself, but I didn't go with a translator, so the man behind the counter didn't know what the fuck. I, I need rat poisoning. I want to kill her. So then, when I say I'm really going to kill myself, this what happens. I say, okay, if I kill myself, people going to know the Run DMC story. They're going to know what me, Run, and Jay did. First to go gold, first to go platinum, first on the cover, Rolling Stone. Everything that hip-hop is doing. It's because of me running Jay and what we did to represent this beautiful culture. But they don't know about Daryl, the little boy who's no different from any other little boy or girl on the face of the earth. Heavy and human, hard and revealing. When I listen to the podcast over the years, I've often thought to myself, man, I wish I had this back in Chicago. So I asked John where he came up with the idea to do a show like this. Whenever I would talk about mental health and depression and suicide on Twitter, I got a tremendous response. And most of my Twitter is dad jokes and Black Sabbath references. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's it's pretty... I think there's a big overlap between the two. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty lowbrow and, uh, you know, 
like it, I always say Twitter is just a, a valve on my brain that I just let the thoughts out on through typing. Um, so <laughs> nothing's ever all that considered. It just kind of plops out, um, which is a big tonal shift when I started talking about mental health issues. And I just got this enormous response, like from tweets of people saying, hey, uh, what you said inspired me and made me want to make an appointment with a therapist. And I did. And I kept it this time. And things are going great. Thank you for for tweeting that. And I'm like, tweeting that? Like that thing took me <laughs> five seconds to type and this difference that this, it's having. So it's just this incredible response. And at the same time, I knew a lot of comedians and musicians. So when, when Wits, the variety show I was doing, got canceled, I was like, okay, well, what, what's in the cupboard here? Like, what, what, uh, what can I make dinner with? <laughs> you know, what ingredients <laughs> do I have? And it sort of seemed to line up nicely to talk about mental health, given that when I did, it seemed to go over big. And I had all these friendships, really, or at least acquaintanceships with a lot of, uh, creators, entertainers. And, you know, there, there are like a handful of radio shows that become consistent hits. Like I think the list is like over the last 20 or 30 years, this American life, wait, wait, don't tell me. And radio lab. Those are really, I mean, there are other shows on the air and I've hosted them, but those are the hits. And so it's really hard to to break into it and get all those stations to carry it and get sponsorship and get good time slots. And the, the podcast, I thought, you know, this is a really narrow idea that I have, but that's what podcasting is for. And, and I saw it as a chance to like take these tools that I had and work with a tremendous amount of freedom for the first time. So I, I kind of had the idea and pitched it internally at APM and it really caught on. Like people really just latched onto it to me to a surprising degree. Cause I did think it was a sort of weird idea. I thought it might work. It might be a total disaster because you're asking comedians to talk about like definitionally the least funny thing in the world. Yeah. And so I pitched it and then we, you know, there was enough interest to do a pilot. So we made a pilot with Patton Oswalt and then um, we found a sponsor, and then we were off to the races. Was the concept for the show always the same? Like, I mean, my understanding is that you start every, almost every episode is sort of thesis, right? Like, do you yeah. do you find depression funny? Which is yeah. really, it, it's still, you know, quietly a provocative question, but right. it, it also feels like, a, it feels like a journey in, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, when when I started the show, when I started thinking about the show, the idea was why are so many comedians depressed? Do depressed people are depressed people more likely to be comedians or does comedy make people depressed? And it quickly became clear that it was unanswerable because there's some people who say, yeah, it's just because comedians can talk about this. They're no more depressed comedians than there are depressed dentists, but if your dentist was talking about suicidal ideation, it would be bad for their business. Whereas <laughs> if a comedian does, it's it's part of the job. But then other people said, no, you know, depressed people see the world in a different way and they are they are sharp about observing the absurdity of it. And so comedy is a thing that they gravitate to. So there was kind of a, a difference of of take on that. But what I discovered pretty quickly was that they were really good at describing it. And it's a hard thing to describe. Hmm. And when they describe it in a resonant way, then people relate to it. And 
pretty soon you're part of a community and you're not just sort of suffering alone in silence. And so that that focus kind of shifted after the initial idea. But before you got to that point where the show's out and it starts hitting its community, um, you mentioned that the station had a lot of sort of excitement around the show. Yeah. Was it difficult to just to even just get out the ground? Like, was, there, was it difficult to sell ads against or, or just to build a model around it? Well, I think... I think APM saw the same thing that was happening around the country and that and that I had seen, which was that there was a hunger to talk about this thing. There was a, a shift going on in the same way, like with littering in the 70s and drunk driving in the 80s. People just said, let's, you know, let's get better about this. Let's let's change things. And there was a real hunger to talk about it. And then, like, it was being talked about more among well-known people. I mean, that that all started, I think, with Dick Cavett in the 1970s, who was on our first season of our show. And so mental health had already been identified by APM as an area that they really wanted to put some muscle behind, that and water, like global water issues. And so it fit really well with that. And at the same time, there's a company in the Twin Cities called Health Partners, which is a, a healthcare provider and an insurance company. And the company had been looking to do some partnerships with them. And so when we made the pilot, I met with them, me and a few other people from the company, and they had this website, makeitokay.org, which was this really cool website that was all about destigmatizing mental health, promoting conversation. Um, they had talking points, like how to approach someone when you're concerned. And they had stories about like individual stories that kind of traced how these things evolve. It wasn't just depression. It was all sorts of things. Hmm. And they had this great website. They couldn't get enough people to go to it. They had bus ads and billboards and nothing really goosed the traffic like they wanted. And so they had this fund for community support and community awareness. And what I wanted to do with the show matched up with what they were doing with Make It Okay. Just the Venn diagram looked like a circle. So they sponsored us right out of the gate, which kind of gave us some wiggle room in terms of underwriting and in terms of generating money in other ways. And it also let me get on an airplane to go out to Hollywood and talk to some of these people in their homes and in their offices. Hmm. So that was a, a real serendipitous kind of arrangement. And we still have a very close partnership with them. It's It's kind of a unique thing because... They have nothing to do with the content of the show. Like, everybody agreed on that right away. Like, there's there's going to be a wall. But it's sort of more like I go out and do events with them, and we talk to them all the time. So it's, it's more of a, a partnership than a sponsorship. And that partnership, at least in its current form, ended this week. More with John Moe in a minute. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. 
Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. John Mose had a long career in public radio. And for the podcast, I wanted to know whether he primarily pulled from that experience or whether he looked somewhere else for inspiration. I think I took a lot from Mark Marin because, you know, sort of about the mental health stuff, but like Mark Marin and, and Howard Stern will just ask the blunt questions without worrying about like, you know, without apologizing beforehand or without, you know, kind of tiptoeing through it, they'll just, they'll just smash right in and people tend to answer them. And that, that's what I really noticed is that if they've agreed to be on the show, then they kind of know what's coming. And if I don't make the question scary, then they probably won't respond like it's scary. And that worked out really well. Hmm. I, th- I think a lot of it is after being in radio as long as I had been, seeing people just being comfortable with the narrow range of topic and the drilling down was was really inspirational. And, and you know, I could get that from a music podcast or a basketball podcast or a lot of other things that I was listening to where, you know, if you're going to talk about Carl Malone, you don't have to do the <laughs> the, the radio thing of, <laughs> Carl Malone was a basketball also player. <laughs> yeah, he was known as the mailman, and here's why. Um, you know, you just talk about it, and the people who are listening to you get the reference already, and yeah. then you're free to just drill down. I, this is one of the things I've been perpetually fascinated by, because even the two examples that you had, like Mark Maron on the one hand, Howard Stern on the other, there's this sort of sense with, with something like Maron and podcasting in general is the thing that you're talking about, the whole the narrower you, you get, the more you're allowed to be yourself almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something about like Stern, probably possibly not these days, but especially in his earlier like part of his career where the very fact of his personalness is yeah. the thing that makes him the shock jock. Yes. It's like, what, what is this? It feels like this sort of like um, embarrassment over the, the personal, like in, in sort of broadcast culture. Yeah, I mean, I've got all the respect in the world for for a lot of the things Howard Stern does, I've never been a fan. I've never been a listener because some of it makes me uncomfortable. Some of it, the awkwardness of it, and I, I can't relax into it. Um, hmm. And I think with, with Marin, I heard him doing it in a more empathetic way and doing it about things that you could tell matter to him. Like Howard Stern can have anybody on the show and ask those questions. I don't get the sense that he's very personally invested in any of it. And so, especially when I started the show and I had a lot of people on the first season who were, who were friends of mine or acquaintances of mine talking about things that I had also been through, I, was, I have always really put my heart in it. Like, you know, when someone's talking about some of these tough times, I might not have been through something identical to that, but I've been through something similar. And so I kind of connect with that. I think the other thing that that comes from it is... Before I was ever in radio, I was an actor for many years. Hmm. And what you're trained to do there is 
give your attention to your partner and go off the cues that they give you. And you, you have your, the, the lines you got to say, the situations that you're in, but you're a human responding to another human ultimately. And I've tried to carry that over to, to interviewing. And so if somebody is, is, you know, telling a funny story about something that happened with their mental health, I'm probably having fun along with them. And if they're talking about some real dark stuff, I'm down there too. And I'm thinking in those terms in that moment. I mean, that's one of the reasons when I'm done with an interview, I'm completely spent. I often need to go take a nap because mm. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's an incredible emotional journey just to be the interviewer in that situation. Yeah. Do you, is there like a collective weight that you feel like, um, because it does sound what you just said there. It's like with each interview, you're, you're giving a lot of yourself in that situation. Yeah. I, I imagine that's different from sort of earlier parts of your broadcasting career. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I've done, I've been a producer, I've been a newscaster, I've been a reporter. Um, hmm. when I did all those things, really my, my focus was on, how is this going to technically sound? And then what information can I get across in what is invariably a very short amount of time? Um, so it's economy of language and it's, it's a, it's a puzzle. almost. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely solving a puzzle. I used to use that analogy when I did a, a four and a half minute tech show once a day for marketplace, you know, like how can I get all this in, in 13 seconds? What preposition can I lose? What adjective can I lose? And so so this was a, a different thing right away when, you know, I didn't have to worry about the clock. I didn't have to worry about swear words. I didn't have to worry about a lot of things that I used to. And it really just let me lean into, in the interview, extracting the story, extracting the story in its full depth and color. And then in editing and assembling the show, using the parts that define the fundamental arc and putting it in the clearest relief I possibly could hmm. so that the listener would have the same illumination that, that I found in the interview. Hmm. Um, I, I, I want to sort of unpack the, the, that sort of post-production process yeah. a little more, but before that, um, so I'm curious, like when you are done with these interviews and then you find yourself spent like, do you have like a self-care routine that happens <laughs> afterwards? Like what, what's the decompression like? Um, I just, I let it be. I don't try to expel it. Um, you know, I might, depending where I am, I might go get a lovely cup of coffee or, <laughs> or a sandwich. <laughs> um, you know, I might, I might nap. I usually don't, but I, I just sort of have to let it sit for a while. And when we do it in the APM headquarters, like if I've been in a studio there, hmm. we'll get through the interview. And then at the end, Chrissy and I will talk about, okay, what stood out for you? What's And that's Chrissy, your producer. Yeah. Like, what's the part that you're going to go home and tell your family about this amazing thing that this person said? Because that's probably something you want to keep and maybe build around. We'll have the debrief and then she just sort of leaves me alone in terms of like, you know, got to go voice this underwriter. You got to write the web copy. Um, <laughs> so we kind of just rest for a while and then I can resume getting back to it. So there's like no like pump up music or no or watch it, put on an episode of Parks and Records. No, I, I don't try to do that. I try to just let it sit. And, you know, it actually gives me a lot of clues about how to, to form the episode after, you know, after the editing process is done, like, like what, what stood out and what was 
surprising. And I kind of just let that sit for a while and, and then maybe watch some Bigfoot videos on YouTube because that <laughs> always helps everything in my life. Yeah, that's the Pacific Northwest yeah, uh, prank coming yep. out. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So when you sit down and you kind of like think through the arc of these interviews, mm-hmm. um, what is the shape you're looking for? Like what are their sort of main components to build around in the initial run of, of thinking back through an interview? Um, I'll generally listen to it all the way through and then just like, you know, while I'm playing poker on my phone or something, like I, I try to do something else with my eyes and my hands so I'm not checking email and, and not paying attention to the interview. I try to avoid words. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I'll listen to it once, maybe twice. And then my process, which I just kind of didn't learn from anywhere, I just sort of came upon it, is... I'll start separating out the interview, the raw tape into beats of like, okay, this is the junior high section. And this is the part about when he was a shoe salesman. So I'll I'll label it in all caps, each of those beats. I'll I'll do like little micro cuts on the tape on Pro Tools and label that cut shoe salesman, junior high, you know, breaking with mother, whatever, whatever it is. (laughs) And, um, And so then I start to kind of see the bones of like the chronology. And if I got to something about childhood late in the interview is something that I can slide back into the first part of the tape and have it be smooth. Would it need a transition? Does it not fit at all? And then usually by then something is kind of emerging that either has been talked about or has been implied or something that keeps coming up. And then I'll, I'll sort of weigh that against the public interest in this person. So an mm. example, we have a, an episode with Stephen Page from the Bare Naked Ladies. Well, I had this memory. I realized that, that suicidal ideation had been a part of my life for as long as I could remember. And I, I, had, I, realized, I remembered walking home from school one day, and uh, well, probably many days, but I remember specifically one day of walking home from school and imagining the knife I was going to get out of the kitchen knife drawer. Um, and I was probably six. Um, and I, it, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that it kind of dawned on me that that's not how everybody thinks, um, that that wasn't the normal way a six-year-old's brain should work. I mean, awareness of suicide is one thing, Um or being upset about something, but just having, you know, have the idea of having a plan. Thankfully, I know now that knife was super dull. My mom never had sharp knives. The thing that, that I thought about while listening to Stephen being suicidal at age six and, you know, all the things, being arrested for cocaine possession and also being a pretty hilarious guy was, oh, okay, there's, there's two levels here. You know, there's, uh, one week is a great song, but it's ultimately about the collapse of a relationship, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And Pinch Me is a song that he brought up, which is a song about depression that he made Ed sing because he was more comfortable not singing it himself because it was such a heavy song. And it's a it's a pop song, you know? And I, And I even say in the episode, like, hold on, Pinch Me is a funny song. There's an underwear joke in it. And someone runs through the sprinkler in their gym shorts. That is a fun song about summer. Um, But then 
you know, you listen to it, and I point this out in the, in the podcast episode. There's also the lines, I feel fine enough, I guess. Considering everything's a mess. And talking about leaving town and nobody would notice that I'm not around. Like, it's a really bleak song. And so the sort of two levels that he would operate on was really telling. And so he would be everybody's favorite party band. Hmm. But then if you pay attention to what he's really saying, uh, he's doing things on the same level. And they're both truthful to Stephen. He's, you know, he's like, no, I, I do like having fun with my friends. But then there's also this. So that to me was the most telling thing about it. And especially because that is something that if you think you know that band, maybe there's a darker, deeper side to them. And I think people would appreciate knowing about that. That's something people might not have thought of. Or, you know, Mike Birbiglia is on our show and he says, I've never been diagnosed as depressed, but he also talks about this persistent obstacle of an inability to feel joy. (laughs) And, you know, and he talks about it in almost all of his shows, but doesn't elaborate. And I'm like, okay, what's going on with Mike Birbiglia? I think that at a certain point, I had this uh, understanding of of my own existential dread. Uh, just this idea of like, well, there's, you know, you know, there's not much we can do. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna die. It's gonna be either instantaneous and soon, or it's gonna be in protracted forty and fifty horrible. years yeah. Yeah, from now, and they'll uh, have some decline to it. And um, and I feel like I that's something I I you know I feel like I can't get that out of my head. I think it's part of what makes me a comedian mm-hmm. because I think about that, and I think that part of the part of the job of a certain type of comedian is like like what the kind of stuff I do is. Is to take the darkness and 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 break it open and find the humor in it, mm-hmm. so that people themselves can see the humor in it. Uh, because I think laughter is a great coping mechanism for uh, a lot of darkness that that surrounds us at all times. And that became a show really about how depression is a term that is sometimes just used for insurance purposes. Like all you're talking about with depression, you can call it that or you can call it something else. You're talking about a dark tendency that is an obstacle in your life. And beyond that, it's semantics and nomenclature, what, you know, however you want to go about that. But that really became what that show was about. And so I try to I try to tell the person's story and use the insight that I've gleaned from their story and from all these other dozens of interviews I've done. This is neither here nor there, but I'm reminded that the word for inability to feel joy is anhedonia. Anhedonia, yes. Which is a beautiful word I for know. something ghastly. I know. It's like gonorrhea. It's just a beautiful word. <laughs> <laughs> In hindsight, gonorrhea is actually a fantastic word. Yeah, yeah. After the break, how the podcast changed John's life. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. 
Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. I'm curious, has your relationship with... Um you know, mental health and and your depression specifically changed since doing the show or starting the show? Yeah, it has in in a kind of unexpected way. And a lot of that is from the book because after after the first season, we we won a Webby Award for Best Comedy Podcast, which I I can only think must have mystified actual comedy (laughs) podcasts. Um, And so we were getting some buzz and my book agent said you should write a memoir i said nobody cares about me she said that's depression talking it'll help people i said okay and then after the second season i struck a deal with st martin's press to write it and then it was like well if i if i have to write a book about a subject i better know the subject and i don't know how well i know me i better go start figuring that out and honestly like through two seasons of the show my thinking was, well, I've stopped my depression from getting worse. And I think I know where some of it comes from. And so then that's the best I can do. If I can just not get worse until I die, I will have won. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but then I thought, well, maybe I can get better. Maybe it doesn't have to be just not worse. And I got into some good therapy because I also wanted to find out more about how my mind works for myself and for the sake of this book. And I I got into cognitive behavioral therapy because I researched enough of the modalities and the, you know, different approaches that I had a good feeling that would work for me. Not everything works for everybody. I thought that would work for me and it did. And it was amazing and revelatory. So the, the show I think has, given me enough variety of stories in terms of what works for people, what people have tried. You know, I've heard everything from electroconvulsive therapy to ketamine to, you know, a million other things. And it let me kind of see the menu and order what I thought would be good. Hmm. I'm sort of thinking about, um, so I just re-listened to the Mark Bibilia episode um, this morning for this and he talked a little bit about the way he restructured his thinking about his sort of career, his work, is mm-hmm. to contribute something as opposed to be something. Yeah. Do you feel like your work with the podcast and the memoir has been sort of the biggest contribution you had in your life? Or, yeah. Or how, how does that settle into <laughs> your, your personal narrative? Yeah, it's it's been... It's a show that I started because my other show had been canceled and I wanted to keep having a job. And so... <laughs> And this seemed like a good topic to have the show about. Now, this topic is what I do with my professional life, and there happens to be a podcast involved. Since the show started, I've been asked to do speeches all over the place. I you know, was hmm. invited to go down to the Carter Center and met with Rosalind Carter down there. Like all these, and writing this book, all these amazing things have happened. And it came at a time, too, where it wasn't just that I was between shows, but I was 
I was solidly middle-aged and I was thinking, what am I doing here on the planet? <laughs> I'm not especially religious or even spiritual. So I didn't really believe any in a, you're intended to do this. There's, it's written down in a <laughs> space book. But I thought, well, what, what should I do? What should I do to help people? And, and this seemed like a chance to do that. Just before we launched, about four months before we launched, my wife had an acute appendicitis while we were on a vacation and it perforated. And we're very lucky to have her still with us. And mm -hmm. after that happened, you know, by the time that was like all done, it was fall of 2016. And I thought, geez, we could all go anytime. You know, tragedy is always just around the corner. And so maybe I could just help people carry things. Maybe I could just help with the load of being a person on the planet. It felt like the same sort of relief as when I was finally diagnosed with depression in my mid-30s after having it since seventh grade. It gave me a chance to think about my work in something other than what are the download numbers? What are the sponsorship numbers? Where are we on the charts? All these things that I ultimately can't really control hmm. and that I was had always had a tendency to misinterpret as a judgment on my own worth, you know? Um, like if a lot of people are listening to the show, that means I am a good boy. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> and thinking in a different term, thinking in terms of like go out there and help people that's a goal that's much more easily filled and much more generous to the world. So I, I um, was giving a speech at this conference for surgeons and you know, talk about imposter syndrome. What am I going to tell surgeons? And the, the person introducing me was, was from Health Partners. And she said, she talked about what I had done in my career, like other shows I had done and other things I had done. And she used the phrase, prior to finding his true calling. And I'm like, oh, no, really? <laughs> and so it really, I had the rest of the biography to find my legs again because it really blew my mind. But it is, you know, I mean, who knows what the future holds, but this is, this is what I'd want to do. Hmm. Through this podcast, through other things, through books, through speeches, through, I don't know, folk music, whatever it is. It's it's the thing I want to do. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This was delightful. On Tuesday afternoon, Mo tweeted, quote, American public media has ended production of the hilarious world of depression. I have been laid off. I am unemployed. I don't know what the future will be. I thank them for giving me the opportunity to make the show happen in the first place. It's a hard day. I don't know where I go from here, but I am looking for work." End quote. We hope that the show finds a home and that Mo will be back in your headphones again soon. For now though, if you haven't checked out the show, I highly recommend that you do. It was a helpful one for me. John Mo, The Hilarious World of Depression. Servant a Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash servantofpod. Web designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. 
Thanks to the team at Elliot Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Serving a Pod is a production of Elliot Studios. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.